a Podcast One production. So we rock up on election day, walk into a polling booth, get two pieces of paper, a pamphlet for the House of Representatives and a, like a dinner tablecloth size thing for the Senate, and we vote. Then what? What happens to that vote? Where does it go? What does it mean in the grand scheme? I'm Adam Peacock, and this episode of Peacock Politics is all about our vote and what it means to an election. My guest knows exactly how it all plays out, the focal point of the ABC's election night coverage and famous for being the first to call the overall result of an election before anyone else. He knows what's happened before it's happened. Anthony Green, thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. I'm asking for a friend. Does that translate to other aspects of life? For instance, do you know what tonight's lotto results are going to be? No, they're completely random. Elections are a bit more organised. <laughs> how organised? How, how much do you know going into an election as opposed to when we all get the results? Well, there are, what, 15 million people who vote, or 13 or 14 million who vote. And you know that most people tend to vote the same way over long periods of time. People don't randomly change from one side or the other. Only a small number of people do. So in terms of what I do on election night, it's a matter of the results are coming in. They're coming from the same polling places as last time. Only a small number of people change. It's, it's not actually hard to predict the outcome um, because the voting patterns are relatively stable, especially with compulsory voting in Australia. You don't have to deal with the disenchanted who don't turn up in Australia. A lot of this series we've talked about how people feel about politics and, and what politics means to people. So it's emotive-based. Your side of things or the way you look at it, especially on election night, is very much data-based. How much of politics all up is based on data? It's not just data-based. I mean, the thing, um, a lot of my work is based on the basic fact that most people have an allegiance to one side or the other and tend to vote that way. They don't tend to change their view. Where do people get their attitudes from? People get their attitudes from their parents, from people they go to school with, from life experience. Most people start voting about the age of 18 and 19 with the attitude sets of their parents. And over time that changes. Uh, buying a house, having children, getting married, attending university, getting a job, training, all those sorts of things change your world perceptions and change your perceptions of politics and how you relate to politics. Someone who's buying a house and having children and dealing with a mortgage and all the costs is dealing with the fact that they're spending more than they're actually earning. Their attitudes to politics will be different from someone who's 55, is spending less, earning more, is looking at retirement, or different from someone who's 18 who's concerned about saving the world um, and climate change. I mean, everyone's got different attitudes. The thing about elections, it's the process of aggregating everybody's opinion and trying to come up with a government, with a parliament that can represent those views. That's what elections are. That's a bigger picture than just what an individual person does. As, as an individual voter, all your responsibility is filling in your ballot paper and expressing your views. You don't have to know too much about the rest of the process to be able to walk in and put your views on paper. Is that dangerous or is that a good thing? To some extent, um, look, most people have got better things to do with their lives than to spend all their time worrying about issues. Most people vote on habit, they vote on leadership, they vote on allegiance. Most people don't vote on issues. Issues affect the margins. I always say that if you broke the electorate up and looked at what determines how people vote, there's four key issues. The first is, what's your political allegiance? Most people have an underlying allegiance to Labor, Liberal, National, to a lesser extent, the Greens. Beyond that, people have an attraction to a leader. Um, leaders are something people can relate more. I trust this person, I don't trust that person. Then you have issues and you have local member factors, but the allegiances and leaders are the two biggest things. And really, I mean, the stability, the 
There's a famous book in Australian politics called Stability and Change. And stability and change are the two key factors. How much do you change society? How much is it stable? And the stability in Australian democracy is the key factor. Compulsory voting adds to that. A lot of people vote consistently in this country who don't vote in another country. We have a very stable political system, which for people who want change makes it very difficult because you've got to actually sort of badger people to get change. But uh, the, one of the things that make it stable is that people don't spend all their time obsessing about politics. Just look at British politics at the moment, which is completely mad, <laughs> as everyone's sort of suddenly a 10th order issue, which is the European Union, has been made the central issue of politics because of holding a referendum. And now everybody's trying to figure out how the hell you can implement that decision from that referendum. I rocked up into London in 2016 when that happened, the day after it happened. And I remember the Prime Minister of the time then, David Cameron, standing on the steps and saying, see you later. I'm just befuddled how, like what, nearly three years later, they're still, they're still talking about the same thing. That's, that is quite extraordinary. Back to Australia and how it works here. Okay, so let's strip it right back to the moment I tick above the line or below the line on the Senate paper, that gargantuan piece of what was formerly a tree, hopefully it's recycled, (laughs) and also the little slip, which is the House of Representatives, and I mark either one to seven or mark the numbers or just the one. What happens then? Let's go to politics 101. Let's, you know, what do you do when you vote? When you get the little slip of paper, that's to elect your local member in the House of Representatives, what you should simply do is number the boxes in the order you'd like to see the candidates elected. So you pick your first choice candidate, put a one next to them, then a two, and then a three down the list. And unfortunately, because we've got compulsory preferential voting, you might know three or four of the candidates and the rest of them are a complete mystery to you, but you still have to number them. So if you've got eight candidates, you know three, number one to three, and in the end, most people just have to randomly number the rest. Or if you support one party and you've got a hard to vote card from them, which was given to you outside, you can follow that as a guide. You can number them in that order. It's up to you. Then the Senate ballot paper's a little more complex, but essentially the same thing. It's divided across the middle by a black line. You vote above the line for parties or you vote below the line for parties. You can't mix and match. You do one or the other. people below the line. So if you want to vote above the line, you vote one for the party you like most and then two for the second most and third for the third most. It's the, the instructions say one to six, so you've got a number of six squares. Technically, you only need one, but the instructions are six to encourage as many preferences as possible. Or if you vote below the line, it's one to 12 in the candidates' boxes, and you can vote for any candidate in any column as long as you've got one to 12. Now, the decision-making in both is the same. Put the number one next to your preferred choice, two next to your second preferred, three to your third preferred. Nobody else controls your preferences. The old system of the Senate where you voted one and your preferences went off on a magical mystery tour, that's been abolished. Nowadays, the only preferences that count are the ones you fill in on the ballot paper. So when you hear all this stuff about deals and preference deals and stuff, just ignore it. You've only got responsibility for one vote. You can't influence how anybody else is voting. Your job is to go in there and fill in these two ballot papers. The electoral system then aggregates your ballot paper with everybody else and tries to produce, say, for a single-member electorate, who is the most preferred candidate and for the Senate, who are the six most preferred candidates. So how the counting system works is less relevant to you than some people make out. All you have to do is know how to fill in your ballot paper and have a decision on who you think the ordering of the candidates should be. But I'm interested in then what happens. You, you mentioned the word either preferred or preference or preferencing a number of times through that answer. So it's obviously a huge factor. How does preferencing work? It's changed from what you were saying about the Senate, but in this modern time, and we hear about 
preference deals done and make sure you list a certain party last because we don't want to have them anywhere near what might happen to your vote. So if I vote for party A, but party A or person A gets nowhere near winning the election, that vote goes to someone else? Let's, let's try and explain. The, it's easier to explain with the lower house. The people are probably familiar with first past the vote, post voting. It's like whoever has the highest vote wins. It's like watching a football match and there's yep. only two can't, two parties. The one with the most points at the end of the match wins. In voting, of course, you can have more than two options. You've got several candidates running against each other. First past the post voting just gives the, the win to the whoever gets the most number one votes. Hmm. For a century, Australia has used preferential voting and people might remember electing school captains at school where you had five candidates and you had to vote for five and then the one with the lowest got knocked out and then you'd vote for four and then three and then two and at the end of two, one of them is the winner. All the preferential voting is a paper implementation of that sort of rounds voting. Instead of voting in rounds, you number the candidates and then when they come to count them, if nobody has 50%, Nobody has 50% of the vote. The candidate with the fewest votes gets excluded and they look at the second preferences of those votes and they get distributed to someone remaining in the count. And if still no one's got 50, they then exclude somebody else right down until there's only two left. So it's like rounds voting, yeah. except it's done on paper and it's done all at once. But those, those um, preferences are, are done by the parties in those deals. No. No? no, they're not. No, that's what I'm saying. They only count what you write on the ballot paper. So the parties have no say, the candidates have no say, the deals they talk about are just agreements on how to vote cards. The only preferences that count are the votes that you write on the ballot paper. You hear people say, don't vote for the Greens, it's a vote for Labor. Mm. Well, that's not true. If you vote one Green, two Liberal, that's the way it's counted. It's what you write on the ballot paper. The parties hand out how to vote cards to try and influence what you write on the ballot paper but it's what you write that matters. Now, the old Senate system used to control preferences in that way. That's been abolished. But in the lower house, it's always been what you write on the ballot paper. And so people shouldn't obsess about it, but seriously think about what you write. So that's what happens is they look at the bits of paper, what's the next number on this ballot paper, and it gets transferred. And the aim is to try and get the most preferred candidate, the candidate who, when you take into account the preferences, is the most preferred. Now, it does mean that if you vote for the candidate that finishes first or second, which is usually Labor and Liberal, your preferences, the rest of your preferences don't get looked at. They get left with the candidate you had your number one. The only ones that get counted are the ones for the candidates that are, that are excluded. So um, it's why, why people who vote for minor parties, their preferences are more important because they get counted. A vote for the two leading parties always gets left with them. It doesn't get distributed. Though... People who vote for those big parties still have to number all the squares. So if if I'm a little vague on where I think my vote's going to end up, you've got to pay close attention to those how-to-vote cards then. Otherwise, it might end up somewhere that you don't if you're going to vote for not one of the big parties. Oh, you don't have to look at the how-to-vote cards. Just write the numbers on the ballot paper. If you are um, vote one for the Greens and you want to vote two for somebody else... Mm. Um, you just put two next to their number and that's what's counted. You've, if you're not sure, if you want to vote for a party and you'd like to know what that party recommends you do with your preferences, you can take a hard to vote card and you can fill it in that way. But seriously, all they count is what you write on the ballot paper. And as I said, most people might be presented with five or six candidates and they don't know them all. So if you want to use the parties, your preferred parties, how to vote as a guide, it's, there's nothing wrong with doing that because you still have to fill in all the squares. That's the problem. I'll get to the Senate in a moment, but focus on the House of Representatives and the, and the voting system around that because that's what forms government, 
And that's how we come to know who is Prime Minister and who is not Prime Minister, who's sitting on the opposition. How much of a role have preferences been in elections past? And do they have too much of a role? They have become more important. We've had preferential voting for a century. And the reason it was introduced after the First World War was, you know, political parties had only been around for about 20 years by that stage. And the Labor Party was the first party formed in about 1891. And the Labor Party had strict internal structures, had a broad membership. The sort of parties that existed before then never really had party membership. But the Labor Party did, and it had rules for choosing a candidate. And under first past the post, if the other groupings in Parliament ran multiple candidates, Labor Party would win because they'd have the highest vote. Anyway, after the First World War, the Country Party formed, and they were running against the then Liberal Party in three-cornered contests. And if the Labor Party had the most votes, they'd win even though they might only get 35 and the other 65 voted for two conservative parties. So preferential voting was introduced to allow like-minded candidates to run against each other and then the voter would determine which of them was elected. So that was its origin. It was also an anti-Labor thing at the time, but it was accepted. It didn't really have a huge impact other than allow competing conservative parties to coalesce Mm. up until the 1980s when we started to see a decline in the two major party votes. So we started seeing more and more minor parties, uh, the biggest proportion of the vote going to third parties and independents. So these days, there are more seats where preferences have to be counted. And so that's why preferences have become more important. Mm. Uh, And so since 1990, for instance, the Labor Party has been a consistent beneficiary of preferential voting. The growth of the Greens has taken votes from Labor. Those votes come back as preferences. In another country, the Greens, like Canada or Britain, the Greens have struggled to grow because under first-past-the-post, if they run against a Labor candidate, they just split the left vote. In Australia, you can have like-minded parties run against each other, and it's why we hear so much debate about one-nation preferences. We know that one nation takes votes away from the coalition primarily, but their preferences tend to spray, and so the coalition wants to try and get those one-nation voters to come and give them preferences when they fill in their ballot papers. But in doing that, they then have to try and appeal appeal to One Nation voters. They want those voters to vote for the LNP first, but if they don't, they want them to give preferences instead. Would you like to see first past the post instead of what we've got, or what we've got is fine and perfect for our system? I think preferential voting works very well. We've used it for a century. It does have very centrist tendencies, and Australia's got a very centrist form of politics. If you go to Britain, they have a much more... Um, divided politics, there's politics of the left and politics of the right and not a lot of middle ground. Preferential voting forces our political parties to push towards the centre all the time because you're dealing with people who don't have strong opinions and you're trying to get them to express a preference. And so I think I think it's worked well in this country. It's created very centrist politics. Mm. And, and I, think, I think it works well. It doesn't mean it'll work well everywhere, but it certainly it avoids this split vote that you can get under first past the post. And every vote and every number on that voting card counts. Do you cringe when you hear of, like, for instance, I had a friend once upon a time, a long time ago, who went into the polling booth and on the House of Representatives card didn't vote for anyone but wrote down, a, added an extra box and put Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, the lead singer, and put the tick next to that and number one. Do you cringe when you hear when people just waste their vote like that? No, but if that friend of yours ever did that and he whinges about the politicians <laughs> just reminded him how he votes. I mean, if you don't vote, if you don't have a say, then... Uh, then, you know, it's... You have no right to whinge. Yes, is my view. <laughs> the Senate. Now, this this could get way out of hand because the, the thing is massive. I mean, is I suppose there's a need for that because there's so many people trying to get into the joint. But 
is that in any way different to the way that you've just explained? Um, how is it different? What's the easiest way of voting when you're going in with a, a the difference is The difference is in the House you're electing one member in the Senate this year, we're electing six. It's a rather complex, it's, it's proportional representation. If Labor gets half the vote, they'll get half the seats. That's basically the way it sort of works. Or, you know, that's, that's what the system is about. It uses preferences as well in a way which is mind-numbingly complex to explain <laughs> as, as a counting process. That's why I always try and separate how you vote from how the votes are counted. Too often people explain how the votes are counted as a way of explaining how to vote. As I keep saying, on the Senate ballot paper, you either number parties above the line in the order you want them elected, and the preferences go for the candidates of each party in that order, or you directly select the candidates below the line. If you don't care who the candidates are, just vote above the line, that's fine. If you want to vote below the line because you want to rearrange a party's candidates, you have that option as well, and you just number the candidates in the order you want. So that's what it is. As for the size of the ballot paper, well, I think that's wrong. The ballot paper should not be that big. It is too easy to get on the ballot paper in this country, and the size of the ballot paper actually interferes with people's ability to find the parties and candidates they do know. And I don't see why anybody who can just manage to get their name on the ballot paper should be automatically able to get on the right. I think it should be tougher to get on the ballot paper. If you're representing 5 million voters, I don't think you should just need 200 people to get on the ballot paper. Is that all you need? Uh, in New South Wales, yes. If you want to run two independents, I think it's 100 names each. So it's 200 names for a single column. If you're on a registered party, you need 500 people across the country. I think that's way too low a barrier. I think it should be made tougher to get on the ballot paper because, look, to be honest, 75% of the people on that ballot paper have zero chance of getting elected, uh, especially since they got rid mm. of that crooked ticket voting system, which was abolished at the last election. So let's not go back on that. But I was going to say the current system sounds confusing enough, so I won't go back through history. Yeah. But you're saying that if, if I... I didn't know the electoral rules, so if I've got... 200 mates and what the oil get their signatures and rock up to the electoral office and say I want to be on that Senate ticket you need 100 to prepare I think it's 100 I'm just a bit dodgy on the numbers exactly but yeah. 100 to get on the ballot paper you want your own column on the ballot paper you need two people with 100 separate signatures and you can run as a column now because you don't have a party name above the line it doesn't do you much good independents don't get elected oh, I could come unless up with you make Xenophon you know <laughs> yeah. um, but um if you can get a registered party, which means getting organised a couple of months before, getting 500 members uh, and getting that registered, if you do that, you can just nominate centrally and you get a name and you get a party name above the line on the ballot paper. And I think that's too loosely. It's easier to register a party for a federal election than for any individual state. And I think that needs to be fixed up. Because if you do that, then you don't get this gigantic ballot paper. I think it is a thundering disgrace the last two federal elections, they have issued magnifying sheets so people can read the ballot paper. That's not an organised election. Most of the people there on the ballot paper, which is making the font so small you need a magnifying sheet, have no chance of getting elected. So I don't see why they should be there. People say, oh, it's your democratic right to get on the ballot paper. <laughs> if I've got a conflict between the democratic right of someone to stand for parliament and the democratic right for people to be given a ballot paper they can read and understand. <laughs> I'll go for the second one anytime. And if someone can't get on the ballot paper, and in doing that, it makes it more readable and gives the people a, a more understandable choice, then I'll go for that. Why don't we vote electronically? Well, it, We don't trust computers yet. It is, well, it'd be hideously more expensive is one of the issues that the way the ballot paper is presented can can be complex. I mean, it's easy to say vote for the lower house on your iPhone, but try and do it on a on a, an upper house ballot paper on one of those. You'd be scrolling left and right endlessly. <laughs> don't like that, don't like that, yes, that. You know, that's the sort of um, thing you... 
uh, will come. It will come, I think, in pre-poll voting, people who vote before the day, because there is increasingly difficulty counting pre-poll votes because there's so many of them these days. If they could be captured electronically, it would aid the process. But the idea of having electronic voting on a single day in polling places is very unlikely. And I'm dead against allowing remote voting, like by using your mobile phone or something or at home. I think people should still come into a centre. Otherwise, it's just like Big Brother or Survivor where you're voting somebody off the island. Elections are a bit more important than that. And therefore, I think actually attending is actually an important thing to do. It's part of the ritual of process. It's a part of the ritual that makes it important, which adds to the, uh, the justification system, to the legitimacy of the process of electing the governed. Just from a logical point of view, electing someone to the House of Representatives seems like a really simple process and it's done well, but the Senate, less so with just the sheer magnitude of the size. And personally speaking, learning more about politics through this series, it's a shame because the Senate is as important as the House of Representatives. So on election day, it doesn't feel that way. For historical reasons, the Senate is a very powerful chamber. It's one of the most powerful upper house chambers in the world. The Senate in America is also very powerful, but for a parliamentary system where the Prime Minister is determined by the Parliament, the Senate is unusually powerful in Australia. And we saw that with the the Senate's actions, which led to the dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975, which is before most people were born. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, me included. (laughs) I was actually at home listening to the radio the day it happened, I always remember. But um, uh, it is a very powerful chamber and a, a government can win an election and still be stuck with trying to pass legislation through the Senate afterwards. It is a proportional chamber. Mm. Every state elects six senators, which means that Tasmanians have as much power in the Senate as people from New South Wales. That was part of the Federation deal in 1901. That's never so, going to change. You have to change uh, the constitution yeah, for you that. You have to rewrite the constitution from scratch, basically. That's not but the Senate is a powerful chamber. It's a proportional chamber. You need 14% to get elected. So if a party that gets 28 gets two, a party that gets 43% gets three members. That's why it's a rather complex-looking ballot paper. You vote for a party. If they get enough votes, they get one, two or three members. And at the end of the race, preferences play a part in if, you know, the leftover bits beyond a quota that a party has or the partial quota that lower pol- polling parties get, they start to get distribution of preferences and it's in- incredibly complex, yeah. which is why I say to people, just think about how you fill in your ballot paper because the electoral system is just aggregating your ballot paper with everybody else's and trying to make sense in terms of who you all voted for. So some, and it seems it happens more with senators rather than elected people in the House of Representatives, if if people end up in there that really sometimes you look at and you go, how they ended up in there with that position of power, it's not so much the system that we're using, it's the people who are either using or misusing the system it's, in a way. It's essentially, it's essentially um, the current Senate is a bit more complex. We had what's called a double dissolution election in 2016. That's basically a mechanism to dissolve. We only elect half of the Senate each election normally, so there's only six per state. The last election was a double dissolution to resolve a deadlock on legislation between the houses. There's a specific provision in the Constitution. But it meant the whole Senate went at once, 12 senators, and that halved the quota. You only needed 7% to get elected. And then since then, we had a run of people being disqualified for not having their citizenship right. And that meant that people were elected on recounts, which is not a normal procedure. And that's how someone like Fraser Anning, who had only 19 votes, that's how he got elected, because he was on Pauline Hanson's ticket. 
the person above him was uh, knocked out by disqualification on citizenship. And Pauline Hanson got enough votes to get more than one person elected. And that and the fact she attracted lots of preferences elected a second One Nation candidate and then the disqualification elected at Fraser Anning. So uh, there's a few misfits and odd bods in the Senate at the moment for a variety of reasons. It should be a little cleaner after this election. How do you clean that up, though, for the future? So things like that don't happen. I read a story about the recent New South Wales election where someone in the Legislative Council, New South Wales version of the Senate, they retired the day after the election. Did I hear that right? Yeah, the difficulty with this, we don't have by-elections in upper houses. Because it's a proportional chamber, they protect the proportionality of the system until the next election. So you can't have by-elections which alter the proportionality at each election. So that's why you get these vacancies. The vacancies are filled by appointment, except when we had these stupid disqualifications and the high courts ruled they're done by recount. Every five minutes. um, There's there's a lot of detail which people shouldn't get obsessed about, is is my view. Because in the end... You've got one vote and that's what you've got to, you know how, know how to vote, don't obsess about the rest of the system. Don't overthink it, is yes. that what you're saying? If you've, unless you're really interested in politics, you can overthink, you can over, over-specify. So people say, how did Fraser Anning get in on 19 votes? Well, it's long and complex and we have basically party-based voting. Nobody in New South Wales could name who the lead candidates on the Labor and Liberal tickets are. Senators are known by name, but they do not attract people to the party ticket in, in, mm. in the states. They do in Tasmania where it's much smaller and they're electing lots of senators in a state where there's more senators than there are members of the House. So people are more aware who the Senate candidates are and people vote for the candidates rather than the party. But in the bigger states, people vote by party and there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, people know who the party is more than they know who the candidate is. Just back to preferences, especially when it comes to the House of Representatives, who are masters at exploiting how preferences work? The parties that do best in controlling preferences are the ones who hand out most how to votes. Uh, The Labor Party and the Liberal Party, their preferences don't often count. Occasionally when an independent comes through the middle, uh, we saw that with Karen Phelps in the Wentworth by-election. Now, by-elections are a bit different because there's a lot more attention on the candidates. But the Labor Party and the Greens, their preferences flowed very solidly towards Karen Phelps and got her up. The Labor Party are better at that when they do those sorts of contests. So she wasn't, if it was first past the post... She would have lost. Taking this as an example, she would have lost. The Liberal Party would have won that seat at a first past the post contest. Are you comfortable as a political expert that that does happen? The preferential system determines the most preferred candidates. And the reason is if you, if you live up country and the Liberals and the Nationals want to run against each other, they wouldn't run. You wouldn't get that choice of candidate if it was first past the post because they might both trail the Labor candidate. And so that's why preferential voting amalgamates choices like that. The voters choose, I want to vote Liberal, but if I, my Liberal candidate doesn't win, I'll give my second preference to the National and the National will be the Labor candidate. That's how it works. For smaller parties, if you vote for the Greens, in most seats your candidate isn't going to get elected. If you vote for Pauline Hanson in the lower house, in most seats your candidate's not going to get elected. But you've sent a big message by voting for that third party. Your preferences then will play a part who, who does get elected. In Britain, where they use first-past-the-post, third parties get no look-in because if you vote for a third party, you might actually prevent your second-preferred candidate from winning. Mm. You might make it easier for your least-preferred candidate to win because you vote for a small party. In Australia, you can vote for a small party and you're not making it easier for your least-preferred candidate to win. Your second preferences will still have a say. So that's why I just say, you know, first choice, second choice, third choice. Don't worry about how the counting works. Just worry about your vote. Don't obsess about what everyone else does. Just worry about your vote. 
your ballot paper. I think you've just convinced me not to overthink it with that answer right there. Um, I, I am interested, though, to know, okay, polling booth shuts at 6pm and then you're on the TV getting all these results in. How does it come to pass that the the ballot box gets emptied mm. and counted? How, does it, like someone's literally sitting there counting the votes and then they count them all, get all the preferences in order, okay, from this polling station... That's how it is. They call it through, do yes. they, or they email, or it's phone through, phone through, phone through, and then it filters in and uh, yeah, gets the, out there. The Senate ballot papers are a simple tally, and we don't really look at them on the night. The lower house ballot papers—they're all tallied by first preference. They open the two thousand ballot papers and they f- unfold them all, and they put them all into piles for each party. Well, physically on the floor. Yeah, yeah. Of the basically ballot. on the floor or on desk, they pile, 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 and then they bundle them all up into bundles of fifty or a hundred. And that's the first preference tally, a total for each candidate. First preferences get phoned through, put into a computer system, and they get sent through to me on the television and, and everyone in the media uh, or onto the websites for people yep. to look at. They then do what's called an indicative preference count, which is a quick and dirty approximation, the final result. They nominate two candidates beforehand. They look at the piles of all the other candidates, determine which of the final two candidates gets that preference. They do a tally and then they find that through. So we get a first preference in every polling place and we get this indicative preference count in every polling place. At the end of the day, the official preference count comes after everybody's counted, but this is a a way to know the result earlier. So that's what they do. They come through to me and we have a computer system that does a whole bunch of polling places. You know, we've got... uh, the results from the back of Burke Primary School, mm. and there's 400 votes there, and last time they voted 52% national, and this time they voted 48% national, so that's a 4% swing in that polling place, and we aggregate all the polling places together and get a swing and then make a prediction. It's, all, it's a lot of mathematics going on in the background, but at the start, there's a bunch of people who've worked all day, and they're counting those bits of paper and then finding through the numbers, and we aggregate that all together to come up with a prediction. Why are you the first then all the time to know what's going to happen, what ends up happening. Because I've been doing it for a long time <laughs> and the data data comes from the Electoral Commission. We get very good data in this country. Yeah. Um, we've just got a model that does it very well automatically. It's not... I've put my brain into the computer program and it does the calculations for me and tells me what the result is. Because otherwise, if you... And this is what's always the hard part for people who aren't used to doing this when they do it on election night. Some computer comes up and says, we've got 12% counted and the Labor's on 52 can I call that seat? Well, I've designed a program which looks at the variability and the stability of the voting patterns and says, yes, you can. Whereas if you don't have that program or you haven't got that experience, you just look at the number and go, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that's the difference. And so, uh, you know, there's um, people sort of, we've got this big push nowadays for me to call the election. Hmm. Who's going to win? Call the election. To me, I've got a computer screen which is displaying all the progressive results as they arrive and doing the calculations, and I can see the results appearing out of the data. It's, it's, it's in front of me. Mm. So it doesn't go from don't know to yes, we know. It goes from yes, there's a picture building up of who's won. So it's uh, I think statistically most people think on and off. You mentioned about pre-polling, which is gaining significance. Will we ever get to the stage where we know the result of an election before election day because there's so many people voted pre-poll? Not before election day because we, they do not physically count anything till 6pm on the night. What pre-poll has created a problem is is that there are gigantic pre-poll centres now with 12,000, 15,000 votes. They're very difficult to count because in a polling place, they generally max about 3,000. 
and there's as many staff there to count as there are to deal with the voting on the day. So they've got a fixed size problem. Pre-poll voting, the people who count them haven't worked during the day on polling places and they're presenting with 15,000. But it's, it's, you might think, oh, if you're counting 100 votes or 1,000 votes, exactly the same thing. No, it's a little bit more complex because you've got a lot more bits of paper and you've got a lot more counting and you've got to keep track of them. And if you knock over a pile of 10,000 votes, it's a lot more messy to fix it than if you knock over a pile of 100. <laughs> uh, and if you drop something on the floor. So that's why 15,000, because they're very complex. It just takes time. The last federal election, we were on air till after midnight, and that was basically because we were still waiting in a close election. We were waiting for some pre-poll centres to come in. Oh, really? Once upon a time, everything was done and dusted by 10pm, except for Western Australia, where the time zone made a difference. Nowadays, we're still getting Eastern States votes at midnight, just because of the physical difficulty counting pre-polls. What will change is I expect in the next decade to get electronic pre-poll voting. If you turn up at a pre-poll voting centre, particularly one of the bigger ones, the votes will be recorded electronically and they will be released pretty quickly after the close of polls. It also means pre-polls for other districts will be counted electronically. There's none of this waiting for that ballot paper cast in Sydney for the electorate of Herbert in Townsville. Instead of that being sealed up and sent to Herbert to be counted, it can be it, Is that electronically. What now? Yeah, yeah. That's the biggest delay in voting in Australia, the counting. It's not because it's on paper, it's because because of compulsory voting, we make it very easy to vote in this country. It's easier to vote in this country than not vote. Because if you don't vote, you have to deal with a fine notice yeah, afterwards. Yeah, I've had that. <laughs> um, if you vote in this country, accident. <laughs> you can vote in your district, you can vote outside your district, you can vote pre-poll, you can vote mm. by post. But all those ballot papers have to go back to somebody to count. And so if you vote absent in Sydney and the vote's got to go to Townsville, the ballot paper has to go there. Some of the states have moved to doing it centrally so it doesn't have to go to the returning officer. But federally, it still has to go back to the returning officer. If you vote overseas in London and you're voted for somewhere in Townsville, your vote has to come back. It probably comes back in a diplomatic bag to Canberra, gets sorted and then has to get distributed somewhere here. And that's why a lot of overseas votes never get counted in the end. It takes too long to get back. Elections, by the way, they don't sound like they're cheap. They're not cheap. Democracy is not cheap. Totalitarianism is a much cheaper form of government. <laughs> you just tell people what to do. But I don't think people would like to live in that sort of society. I always like to say people think that everything's... After the Second World War, I was in Berlin a couple of years back and I made a trip out to Potsdam. There's a whole series of palaces just outside of Berlin. And in Potsdam, uh, there's a, f a hunting lodge where the president of America and the Soviet, Stalin, it was Stalin and Truman because Roosevelt had just died and Churchill was a British prime minister and they met at Potsdam just after the war and halfway through that conference, Britain went straight to an election after the war and Europe was over and Churchill lost in one of the biggest landslides in Australia, British history. Here's the man who led them through the war mm. and they lost because the public of Britain didn't trust him to govern in the peace. They trusted him to win the war but not to govern in peace. So halfway through that conference, Churchill resigned as Prime Minister and Attlee became Prime Minister. And Stalin's reaction was, huh? You know, this is a man, he couldn't understand how you can win a war and lose an election. But this is a man from a mindset that doesn't countenance that the public ever say. He ran a dictatorship, he told you what to do. That's the beauty of democracy, is if you think back even two years ago in Malaysia, you know, everyone thought the Malaysian Prime Minister would be re-elected because they ran such a one-party state, and he lost. Even an imperfect democracy can produce change. And you compare the change that Britain had by having democracy after the war, that change didn't arrive in Russia for 40 or 50 years, and when it did, it was much more violent and much nastier. Democracy allows change. 
the alternative to democracy is rigid states and every so often you have revolution and revolution is a much nastier way to get change mm. than getting it through the ballot box. So it's worth the cost, is that what I you're saying? It, I think it's worth the cost. And uh, I always remind people, I remember when Nelson Mandela was let out of jail in South Africa and when that first election was held, multiracial election was held, all those Africans, like Africans who lined up to vote, for once they had a say mm. over who governed them. They would have a say of the government that was sending in the troops or the battens to beat them up, where previously they didn't. If you've been in that situation, democracy matters much more to you. And Australians are very blasé. We find people for not turning out to vote. But honestly, to people who think democracy doesn't matter, imagine a state where you couldn't say that, where someone could just pass a law to do X, Y, and Z, when uh, I think it's a, a good system. Yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's messy. But as I think Churchill once said, uh, democracy is the worst system apart from all the others. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it in the end. Anthony, I wish you nothing but a uh, enjoyable election night for this one and the ones beyond and hopefully they're simple for you and we'll try not to overthink it in the electorate. Thank you very much for your time on Peacock yeah, Politics. Remember to vote, get out there and just list the candidates in the order you want to see them elected. Done. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.